Welcome back to America's leading higher education podcast, The EdUp Experience, where we make education your business. Hosts Dr. Joe Salustio, Elizabeth Liba, and producer Elvin Freites bring you the brightest and most influential minds in higher education today. We explore innovations, ideas, and issues in higher education and beyond, and hopefully have a little fun along the way. Now let's get to it. Welcome back, everybody. This is the EdUp Experience, where we make education your business, interviewing the brightest and most influential minds in higher education today. Always with me, always, always with me in her laundry room, and I'm in my bedroom, Elizabeth Liba. Elizabeth, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. The laundry room is kind of like a downgrade. I prefer the master bedroom closet, and you're, you have an upgrade because you're usually in the garage, so... Yeah, I'm I'm uh, I'm either in my bedroom, which I never leave apparently um, all day. Work here, sleep here, never leave. Or sometimes I make it downstairs towards the garage area. Uh, but you know, we, we we these are professional studios, Elizabeth. So we do what we can. There you go. There you go. Uh, well, I'm excited. Uh, you know, even with our our uh, you know executive uh, recording studios that we work in, we're still able to have great guests and uh, with us today on the line, Dr. Hal Higdon. He's chancellor of the Ozarks Technical Community College System and president of the Ozarks Technical Community College Springfield campus. Hal, how are you doing today? I'm great. How are you? Oh, you know, we're <laughs> surviving to thrive. Living the, living the dream. Exactly. <laughs> living the dream, right? Somebody we know said surviving to thrive. I thought that was a, that was a good one. Uh, how, how are you doing? How's your health? How's your family during these unprecedented times we're living in right now? All very healthy. Been lucky. No one's been sick. Uh, we're counting our blessings. Well, that's good. You know, it's uh, oh boy, it's a it's a cra- crazy times. It seems like things are getting crazier. We're getting closer to. And you're located in Missouri, where where uh, you know the, I, I wouldn't say the weather is like sunny San Diego in Missouri. I think it does get a little cold there, and ice storms and all that kind of stuff. Um, so uh, you know, there's a lot of worry about the flu combining with the coronavirus right. and and all that. How are you working through, you know, leadership in higher education today is just um, more challenging than it's ever been. I think that's probably true of a lot of businesses, but, you know, we, we in higher ed, we can influence people's lives. We have a lot of um, stakeholders interested in what happens. Uh, and so how are you and your leadership team preparing for um, the cold weather fall and what that looks like and the scenario planning? Well, you know, there's a lot of things we've been doing, obviously this semester, we incentivized our students in general education courses who could go online to go online. It's actually uh, the reverse of the history where it's actually cheaper to take a full load online than it is in person. And so we had a 60% increase in the number of students taking online classes, which really helped us empty out our classrooms um, and focus on our allied health and technical courses, which do have to have a portion online. So we're, we've got a lot less people on campus. Uh, parking, first time in the history of the college, nobody's complained, so that's good. And then we've also been really uh, vigilant about uh, offering um, continued COVID testing. And then we, um, as we do every year, offer free um, uh, flu shots to all of our employees and our allied health students, and then working to get all of our employees and students uh, flu shots because the worst thing that could happen is to have the flu and COVID at the same time. 
Yeah. Um, you know, it's interesting. It's funny that you say the thing about parking because, uh, you know, for anybody that has worked on a physical campus uh, in higher ed, parking is always a complaint. <laughs> the oh. uh, and, and that's funny. I mean, yeah, there's more parking than there's ever been. You know, but your students, your, your programs, um, uh, I'm going to say they're hands-on. You have a lot of technical training, mm -hmm. allied health programs that necessitate, um, I don't know, the didactic hands-on work uh, of learning. And um, you're also contributing with those hands-on programs to an economy in, in the Springfield and Missouri area where, uh, you know, there's a dependency on, on people who are getting this uh, trade and technical learning to go out there and get jobs. What's your impact on the local economy? And, and you know, didn't need to give me numbers, but just right. you know, your, your impact on the local economy. And is that being affected right now? Are you seeing less students making it through? You're seeing stopouts and gaps and, and all that, or have your students been primarily pushing through? It's been an interesting phenomenon. And, uh, March 13th, we shut down the college for two weeks for spring break, thinking we'd come back. And of course, we, we did not come back uh, in the spring, but we did, uh, as soon as we could, start bringing back all of our allied health students and technical students that had online, uh, that had in-hand um, needs. So we were able to get our students uh, that needed to do labs, that needed to do clinicals, that needed to do welding projects, automotive, whatever, and we got them through and done and graduated in uh, May. We have seen that our persistence uh, numbers have actually gone up uh, for the spring and summer and even through this fall. Uh, we are actually trending better uh, for persistence. And um, a lot of that is, you know, even if you're taking welding, we made a decision eight years ago to put a, a shell, a canvas shell, which is the technology we use for online onto every course, no matter what. So if you're taking welding, you're doing your book work, you're doing your studying, you're doing your testing, you're doing that online, and you're only coming to campus for what has to be done. And it's actually paying off to um, people are being more persistent. Our drop rate for the fourth week, which is our census date, is the lowest it's been in years. So what we're finding is that um, the pandemic has probably put a jet pack on change and meant that what we were going to, hoping to do in five years, we've done in one year, and I think it's paying off for students. Yeah, that's interesting. And Elizabeth, uh, you know, uh, we've talked to a number of community college presidents, and, and you know this, Liz, that access and Wi-Fi and all those issues, have, uh, things have come up and, and uh been um, challenging. So, um, and I'll let you take it from here, Liz, but I think that's definitely a key component of, of uh, you know, college access has just been up and down, if you will. Yeah, absolutely. It's definitely a concern. And as a faculty member, I think one of the things I worry about with my students is just their ability to consistently access their um, Wi-Fi, balancing their work and parenting and all the other obligations that they have that have been ramped up because of everything that's happening with a lot of students that need to take care of kids that they're homeschooling and things like that. So let's drill down a little bit as far as what are some of the specific things and, and what would you 
um, recommend? What are some of the tips and strategies? Because you said that the persistence rate has gone up, which is really impressive. And I think a lot of schools would be kind of scratching their head like, wow, how did you accomplish that? So what are some of the things that you've done to support your students and and how do you manage to, you talked about Canvas, which is awesome, the idea of, and I love that because we had another college president um, a few, uh, maybe a couple of months ago, right, uh, Joe, where they had a lot of the career programs as well. And they did much the same thing. They had those, uh, they had the shells already in place. So it really wasn't much of a pivot. It was more of them um, just really kind of letting the students transition, like you said, kind of put a jetpack on what they probably were going to do anyway. So give us a little bit more as far as, you know, what your student feedback has been and, and maybe some tips about that, about what the uh, the strategy was and, and how you were able to be so effective with that. The first thing we did is um, do a suggestion of one of our lead team members, Dr. Abby Benz, is that we went back to the old days, we kind of went backwards and we started calling every student, um, every mm -hmm. employee of the college, including me. Um, we created a flow sheet, we created a script. Um, we called 11,000 students in the spring multiple times and you would call that student, you would either get them on the phone, you'd leave a message, whatever. And then you had a script with a flow chart that took to you do they need health issues? They have health issues. They have hunger issues. They have study issues. Do they need a hot spot? Do they have mental health issues? And we got such incredible feedback from our students that, you know, sometimes it was just thank you so much for asking, but then sometimes it was, I need transportation. And we have, as most colleges do, we have a student emergency fund that about 80% of our faculty and staff contribute to. And we were able um, to also bring in some donors that helped with that fund. And we were able to get them the help they needed. Um, also, we bought a lot of hot spots and did that sort of thing. But what we really found was that calling campaign um, paid some dividends. We were up 14% enrollment for summer. And everybody else in the, in the area were having major drops. And I think that we had people who said, you know, they care about me, they, they have my back, and we worked through their issues. We also uh, expanded the time for live chat till 10 p.m. every night. Um, our average age of student is 20. We have a very traditional age student right now in the history of our college, and they're late-nighters. So, you know, we have chat bot for after 10, but till 10 p.m. we had live chat where people are there to really help you. So that persistence, I think, has been that they are connected. And they were also in the beginning of a new process um, with our embedded advisors so that you get the same advisor the day you put an application in that stays with you to graduation and you're not, you don't get shuttled from, from um, admissions to financial aid to the business office. You have one point of contact. And we started that this year. Um, we were gonna do it uh, partially and we went ahead and did it for all of our tech ed and our branch campuses and we'll be doing our main campus next year. And all those things, it's about relationships. You know, we say in philanthropy, you don't give for causes, you give for relationships. And I think education is the same way. So, you know, while the rest of higher ed is uh, down, we were looking at our numbers through this morning, we're up 1% over last year 
and we budgeted to be down 10%. Wow. That let me, let me jump in with a quick question there. Do you, do you think, um, Hal, do you think that that's the students that with your increase in enrollment, um, that these are students that were looking at a more traditional type of university and, and have decided to stay closer to home and, yes. and knock out some of their gen eds closer to the home because of the, the risk or, you know, or, you know, so t talk to me about where you see that trend in, in the student increase. Well, the trend is interesting. Our allied health programs don't grow because they're full. <laughs> so they're static. Uh, general education uh, was up dramatically, which is your academic transfer. And we're actually down in tech ed, which is a result of two things. One, we've had to reduce the number of people in a classroom. There's only so many people that can be in an automotive shop, uh, social distancing, even with masking. So we're down in the career um, paths, which goes to a question you had earlier about economic input. Um, but we're way up in general education. And it also pushed, pushed our, um, on our campus here in Springfield, our average age is 19. So we have a lot of very traditional students who may have gone off to the University of Missouri or gone off to the University of Arkansas or Washington University. Um, mom and dad probably were not really feeling good about them going off. And so they've stayed. And um, if they're fresh out of high school, Missouri since 1993 has had free community colleges called the A-plus program. So if you graduate from Missouri College and you've done your attendance properly, you've done your volunteer hours and you kept your GPA up, you get to go free. So the, a lot of those students use that A-plus for summer before they go off for the fall. But I think we had a lot of them who chose to go for fall and will probably be with us in the spring. But at some point in time, we'll go on off to that university that they had planned to. That's interesting. That's interesting. And I, you know, I, Liz and I have talked about that a lot, you know, that uh, students that may have gone off to a traditional setting are going, nope, uh, I'm staying close to home or mom, mom and dad, particularly for, for traditional age students are saying, you know, you're not going anywhere. You're going to, you know, I need to, to watch you a, yeah. a little bit, not, not because I'm a helicopter parent, but because there's, there is massive concern still. And, you know, depending on the state that you live in, there's still, um, boy, I, I live in California. So this spiking, we're starting to see spiking infection rates again. Um, so it's like there's uh, at least no end in sight. And I know parents uh, are feeling burned. They're feeling, uh, uh, um, I don't know if it's worry or concern. And they, you know, the closer your kids are to you, the, the more control you, you have, I guess. And Liz, you feel some of that, don't you? I mean, it, you're, you're, your kid's staying home is, uh, uh, right now, right? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, as a parent, it, it is definitely concerning. And I think for most parents, you know, the, the thought of going away and, and being four hours away or five hours away, even across the state, is still a little bit like, uh, you'd rather kind of keep them at home, be, know that they're being safe, knowing that they're taking the proper social distancing um, precautions. I, another question, I guess, would be um, as far as the, the technology aspects of it and I, I wanted to really commend you guys for that personalized touch because as a faculty member, I'm always thinking in terms of retention. And because I work in instructional design, I work for the online program. 
we constantly are being asked, and I, I share this frustration sometimes with Joe, and he laughs at me, but we're constantly being asked, well, what technology, what apps, what, what things can we do, what whiz-bang fireworks can we have coming out of the platform to engage the students? And I'm always like, they just want to talk to somebody. They want someone to show that they care. They want a relationship, even though I think we have this mistaken idea about these 21-year-olds. My daughter's 21. These 20, that's how you said that average age of 19, 20-year-olds, that they want tech. And they do, they love technology, but at the heart of it, I loved what you said and that's so salient that the students really said, hey, I'm just glad that you reached out and I felt like you cared. And I think that's so important when you're you're kind of trying to develop that nurturing environment for an 18 to 24 year old that's still just trying to navigate the world and try to figure things out, just letting them know. And I think sometimes we get in the habit of like, you're 18, you're an adult, get out there and spend for yourself, but they're still technically, I think when I look at my daughter, I mean, she's still very immature. <laughs> well, some, of us, some of us are still immature in our 50s. So <laughs> Exactly, exactly. So just imagine a 21-year-old is still trying to figure out how to even just be on their own. So I really commend you guys for that. And I think that's something, a really huge takeaway that I think a lot of schools really need to kind of like listen to, because I think we're thinking about pivoting to online and all the technology. How do you see foresee this working its way into a part of how you will strategize moving forward? Do you feel like online is going to be a bigger part of your strategy? Do you feel like things will go back to normal maybe in the next six months? What what are your thoughts about that? Or are still things are things still a little bit more up in the air as far as the planning? Hey everyone, this is Joe, just reminding you to check out our website at www.edupexperience.com where you can find and explore all of the content that we've released under the EdUp Experience brand, including multiple podcast series, EdUp Elites, EdUp Embedded, and EdUp Experts. You can also suggest topics or guests for our podcast. Then head over to YouTube, check out our channel, The EdUp Experience, and you're going to find that my amazing co-host, Elizabeth Liba has started a new web series called Ed Up Unplugged, where she talks about racism in America with special guests coming on that web series. We've got a lot going on at the Ed Up Experience. Again, check out our website at www.edupexperience.com. Now let's get back to our guest. Uh, I actually don't think anything will go back to normal. Um, We had Mm. students who were forced online on March 13th who thought they would hate it, who found hmm. out, you know what, it's not so bad. Hmm. And we were already with this traditional age group. Most of them were taking some hours seated, some hours online. Um, right. I think what we've done is created uh, a whole new group of digital learners. Um, hmm. and, and of course, we serve students, uh, you know, 50% of our students are Pell eligible. So that means 50% of them are probably working one or two jobs. And by taking a couple of classes or all my classes that are uh, available online, that makes keeping a job or multiple jobs much easier. And even if you're in a program like welding and instead of going um, every day and physically welding and some of that would be classroom instruction, if you're doing the classroom instruction online, then maybe I'm only going to school two days a week um, rather than five days a week or something like that. So I think what we've done, and, and I said we put on a jetpack, change has come to us 
in such a fast way, I don't think we'll ever go back. Uh, I do think the reason that we are up when some of our cohorts, like in St. Louis and Kansas City, they're down 14, 15%. They went all online except for essential courses. And people voted not to go online. They wanted the option of in-person. And so I think what I see is a community college has always been a little bit of a buffet. You know, you had technical, you had allied health, you had workforce, you had gen ed. Well, also modalities. We're going to continue to have traditional seated, but more enhanced. So they're really hybrid. And then we'll have all online. But I think uh, nothing goes back to normal. And of course, um, you know, earlier I had, was asked and I forgot to answer about our economic impact. You know, we did an economic impact study by a national firm just a few um, years ago. And our economic impact is about a quarter of a billion dollars a year to our region because we have four, over 40 technical and allied health programs that feed basically the industry and the healthcare of this area. Uh, the, the concern I have right now is the decrease in number of students across the state of Missouri who are in technical programs during this COVID time. And we're in a boom economy in Southwest Missouri. Um, our major manufacturers are advertising on the NFL games on Sunday, come out and you know come to workforce. So we have a real need for skilled workforce at a very time we're seeing a decrease in the number of students going into those fields. Wow, that's like mind blowing even thinking about that and all the impact and all of the jobs and all of the students and the economy and just the state in general. But it sounds like you've been able to navigate a middle ground that works for the students and, and gives them the ability to still maintain uh, all of their other responsibilities and, and pursue their future career goals. So that's definitely a good thing, uh, a silver lining that's come well, out of this thing, situation. The main thing we try to keep in mind is we don't have a homogeneous student. The -hmm. student is not a 20-year-old female from an upper-middle-class family. It is that, but it's also the 28-year-old who just now got his life together and is coming back to school. And then it's a lot of students who are first-generation. We have a huge number of first-generation college students. And as one who was a first-generation college student myself in the 80s, that's a scary proposition. So, you know, I think we have to be really careful and not put our um, students in silos, just like we shouldn't put our employees in silos, which we're trying to get rid of silos as fast as we can. Well, Hal, that's interesting. Um, mm-hmm. talk, talk about that a little bit, but talk about silos mm-hmm. and eliminating silos. And, and are you talking about that internally? Um, at the functional structure, functional structure of your community college, is that mm-hmm. what you're indicating? Talk to me about that. Uh, why the silos exist, in your opinion, and how you're breaking down those barriers? Because I think uh, if there's one thing that we're really good at in higher ed, it's siloing. It um, is, you know. So give give us your insight. Well, right after I came here, we were located next to a grain silo, giant, hundreds of thousands of square feet. And we bought it and tore it down. And I said, that's the first silo we've torn down. Now we need to tear down some that you can't see. And I like and, that. And we really see siloing even inside our student affairs area. You know, financial aid is here, advising is here, admissions here, the registrar is here. So our student success redesign that we're engaged in now, and we just did a, a, a interview on Friday with a lady from the New York Times about it, is getting rid of those silos. So eventually 
um, every person who applies to the college. And we've looked at the waterfall effect. Uh, if 100 people apply, 50 of them will enroll, 25 of those will graduate. So if we can change that, so the day you uh, apply, you will be contacted by your person. Uh, each person will have a caseload of 300 to 350 people, and their job is to take them through all the way to graduation. And they're not going to be, they don't work for student services, they don't work for finance, they don't work for academic affairs, they're completely separate. And, but they're trained in financial aid, they're trained in admissions policies, they're trained in transfer, they're trained in all these areas. And if you stay gen ed, that will, you will stay with that person. If you move to allied health or technical, you will be moved over to an advisor who only deals with technical or only deals with nursing. So it's a big investment on our part in uh, personnel, many of which we've been able to move around without hiring new, but even the new, uh, if we even increase our retention rate and enrollment rate by 4%, it will pay for all the personnel we're hiring. Yeah, that's, that's uh, oh, I like that. You're talking good data uh, implementation. And, you know, one of the enrollment rates and, you know, back in the for-profit sector, when I worked there, we called it the stitch in, you know, how do we, how do we keep you, how do we keep you involved with the university during your, your wait time from enrollment to when you actually begin your classes and the, the amount, the number of, of things that you can do. Uh, but it's not just about doing things. It's about having a frequency. It's a schedule. It's, it's, it's split testing and managing and, um, uh, and uh, really measuring that engagement so that you can make improvements to future communications. That's it. And, and to your point, um, it's interesting that, uh, you know, one of the things that I've heard toyed, uh, different universities have tried it and toyed with it and, and nobody's really gotten it all the way right as the, as the whole Marriott re rewards model. Yes. Right. Where you, if you are a platinum or titanium, I don't even know what it is now, uh, member with Marriott Rewards, when you call a phone number, you get somebody that that has all of your information. Hey, you know, I call. I happen to be a, a, a platinum member, and I call. It's like, hey, Joe, how you doing? And I'm like, hey, mm -hmm. what's going? On? I got all your account information right here. Yeah. What do you need to know? How can I help you? And my questions are almost answered before I even get a chance to ask them. That level of customer service and education can have reverberating effects in a positive way. If you could figure that model out, it sounds like you guys are well on that path. Well, part of that was buying a, a CRM, um, you know, customer relations management um, software, which we just did. And we, and you use the word uh, Marriott rewards. I base it on Hilton, but that's just the difference. But um, we want, and I, and this is how I, phrase this when we started, I want concierge service for every student. So if you're a diamond member at Hilton, what you just described at Marriott's the same, we want every one of our students to be a diamond member. Exactly. Yeah, and we learned from the private, I mean, I'm, I'm the biggest critic of the, some of the for-profits, but the thing they did really well, and we used to secret shop them, you called uh, one of those and they called you back the next day. They stayed with you. They, they, they you know, they were really good at um, getting you in, processed, and, and, and in contact. And you know, we poo-poo the for-profit sector, but there's a lot we can learn from them in the way they treated students, other than the cost and other variables. 
Yeah, and you know what? The the innovation from the for-profit sector as somebody who worked there was was applying business models to to education, right? In a way that, you know, customers customer response, customer service. And you know, one of the the um, to your point, one of the um, one of the methodologies that really separated for profit from nonprofit at that time was the idea of passive versus uh, active recruitment. You know, when when somebody suggested that somebody was interested in your college, you actively reached out, you actively kept in touch with them, you actively recruited them versus sitting back and waiting for somebody to apply and in, in the process. And nonprofits and community colleges, and, and really in public universities, are more looking more towards active recruitment uh, simply because um, competition is going to heat up. I mean that the the student. Uh, demographics and declining, you know, age of students over the next five years, not declining age, boy, I, I'd be in, I'd love to have declining age, but, um, you know, the, the number of college age students will decline. Have you thought about that from, from your yes. level of, uh, what's, what's that look like for you in terms of strategic planning for the future? 2026 is a cliff in Missouri. Right. Um, there's going to be a huge decrease in the number of high school seniors. Um, we're already seeing uh, the public and private universities who used to be highly selective, they're now more selective, that were selective are becoming moderately selective, moderately selective are basically coming op open admission. Uh, with COVID, a lot of them have used the excuse of doing away with uh, ACT and SAT because of COVID, but it's also a strategy because we're seeing students who would not have gotten into XYZ University five years ago getting in. So what has happened is the universities at the very top are becoming a little more flexible. The ones in the middle are becoming more like four-year community colleges. So what, you know, we're always going to have a better price point, but our, our point is we want to give them a better experience. I tell every student I meet, I want to get you in as quickly and as efficiently as possible, and I want to get you out of here as quickly and efficiently as possible. Every semester you stay here longer than you should, cost you money and opportunity. It also costs you money in cash. And if you're doing student loans, it's going to cost you money. So our idea is to become the place where um, we're not a traditional university. We don't have dorms. We don't have athletics. We don't plan to. We're here to teach you and get you going on to a university or on to a career. And I think that is the future. And that's really what the for-profits did well as, as well. And the other thing is we've got to be plugged into our local economy. We can't have programs that don't have jobs on the other end. When we look at our 180-day follow-up after graduation, we want to keep that 92 to 94% employed in the region. Um, that is extremely important to us. And um, your reputation is, is more important in recruitment than active recruitment. Yeah, you know, do you're, that, sorry, Liz, I'm taking up so much of the, the questions. No, here. no, no, this is fascinating. I love that Dr. Higdon came with his receipts. Like, he has his stats, he has his percentages. I'm just, like, in awe right now. So y'all go ahead. I'm listening and taking notes. <laughs> well, you know, he, 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 you said something, and I'm glad you said it, because I've, I've, I've kind of been waiting for somebody to bring it up, and this is my soapbox moment here. Um, if, you, if you work in enrollment, or marketing, a lot of times anything your school does, uh, or, or let's just say exclusive schools, the way that, that you became exclusive besides reputations and huge endowments over the years, and, and you could say research universities, all this stuff, because you li you limit your enrollment, right? You take the top three, 3%, 5%, 
and the more students you turn away, the higher your reputation goes. Well, all of a sudden, we saw this trend as, as everybody started seeing this cliff uh, for, for enrollment. This is even pre-coronavirus. All of a sudden, schools start dropping um, GREs, start dropping SATs and ACTs, and, and they tied it to diversity and inclusion. And I just looked at that and went, you got to be kidding me. Like everybody, anybody who actually works internally knows that you're having enrollment problems. You're looking at enrollment issues. And so you're dropping your testing to widen your funnel of applicants. Okay, you could talk about diversity and inclusion too. And Liz, you might disagree with me. You're really in the world here. But I, I just went, you know, you don't just all of a sudden decide that you're lacking diversity and inclusion and you drop your testing. That just doesn't happen that fast. You drop it because you're trying to widen your funnel. You're the first person, uh, Hal, that's kind of brought that up. And, and to your point, everybody is looking to widen their top end of their funnel in terms of applicants to stay relevant. Well, you're going to have to to stay in business. And of course, I grew up in a family business. My undergrad is in business from the University of Alabama. So um, I gave my state of the college address last Friday via video. And I joked, I know the faculty are tired of hearing me talk about finance, but without finance, we don't stay open. And um, what I really see is the next five years, we're going to see hundreds of schools either merge or go out of business. And um, because, frankly, there is not the population. Uh, if you're state supported, show me a state that's really investing in higher education in a greater way. Um, our school is the lowest funded community college in the state because our state funding formula is based on where you were in 1993 and we weren't born until 1990. Mm -hmm. So. 75% of our revenue is um, tuition. So we, we work more like a private, but in reality, my board likes to say we run like a business. And, and, and a faculty member would often say, we don't, we're not a business. Well, if a business is successful, it's because uh, financially, it's because their product is good. And I look at what we do is, uh, Number one, we're serving the community with the programs they need. Number two, we're serving our students. If we do it well, we do it efficiently, and we build a reputation that brings more students in, then we're going to be successful financially. Uh, of all the colleges in Missouri, I think we're the only one this year that went into spring and summer. We did not furlough a single student. We did not cut a program. We did not lay off an employee. We even kept our part-time students working. Um, during the summer, uh, we even had them painting and doing everything else. And we're actually investing in employees right now where everybody else is cutting back. And I think that's because we understand that the business model and the business model is not giving away grades. It's bringing students in, letting them learn, helping them learn and getting successful. And um, a lot of faculty don't like the word retention, but retention should mean graduation with a viable degree and proper knowledge, not just uh, like our K through 12 is accused of a lot, which is just passing through people through. Hmm. How do we get faculty to buy into that idea, Dr. Hickman? Because I think sometimes when we talk about retention and because I came from admissions and I've worked in for-profit and nonprofit, I think that I have a little bit of a broader um, range of experience to draw from as a faculty member. But a lot of times, I think faculty do try to make that connection and it's not accurate. When they think about the idea of retention, they do kind of go to the idea of, oh, okay, well, that means that you're just asking me to give away grades or be easy. 
how did well, you get faculty to buy into your philosophy? And you never have 100% buy-in, but um, yeah. our faculty um, understand that if they work 20 years here and no one has ever pushed them to give a grade they shouldn't give, or no one has ever pushed them to try to um, improve their um, statistics as the number of students who finish in an in a unwholesome way, you build trust. So the reason faculty are suspicious is because they've probably seen or heard of cases where people have maybe behaved a little bit unethically. Um, I have one rule. Um, I came out of the finance side, the HR side. I don't get involved in, in um, academic affairs. Uh, I do not even rule. Uh, it ends with the provost when it comes to appeals. They don't come to me. They end with her. Same thing with student affair appeals. I really believe that if you if you support the faculty and they see you have the right intentions, then they understand if they're suspicious, there's a good reason for it. Like that, that that's good because you, you're 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 encouraging that environment where you support and you trust and leave it up to them to do the right thing, and, and that's really the most important thing: doing the right thing for the student. Um, people are a faculty or my late wife was a faculty member, and um, I, she used to say, "Faculty are people too. We have the same wants, mm -hmm. we have the same needs. Faculty need to feel supported. They need to feel sure. empowered." They need to know that you've got their back. You know, when I have mm -hmm. an angry parent who makes their way to me, 99.9% .9 of the time, there's a student who hasn't told the parent the right story, the true story. <laughs> and I had no, <laughs> students don't tell the truth. <laughs> uh, yeah, and so, you know, in my faculty and um, our faculty, the, the provost, they know that she and I have their back. Now, if they did something wrong, we're going to deal with it. But the fact is, the faculty have to know that I will fight as hard for them as I would any student. And I would fight as hard for them as I would if it was my family member. And if you build that trust, um, faculty can do amazing things, but it only takes one bad incident to lose that trust. Yeah, well said. Well, we're gonna, we're gonna move Hal, uh, so we keep peppering you with questions. We're gonna move to our final two questions for you. Uh, okay. Your insight's been really uh, amazing. Mm -hmm. So hopefully you can answer this with, it, with uh, um, you know, you'll be the prognosticator of the year here. <laughs> what does the future of higher education look like? And uh, two, uh, is there anything we missed about Ozarks Technical Community College that you would like to say or add uh, anything you're working on, anything happening, uh, just to you know, plug your your institution and anything sure. that's happening. Well, as far as the prognostication, uh, community colleges, universities, higher ed, K through 12, there's going to be fewer of us. Uh, will be more technology um, invested. There'll be more online. I think that even the traditional class will be hybrid, and there'll be less public support and we will all be running much more like a for-profit did as far as the way we operate. And um, states, we used to be state supported and then we were state assisted. Now we're just state located. So we can't depend on the state and we have to behave 
and I use the word entrepreneurial higher public education. Um, entrepreneurial public higher education is what we have to be, which is entrepreneurial and then focus on success of the student. As far as um, what I'd like to mention about OTC, we opened bids on Friday for our new Center for Advanced Manufacturing. It will be $40 million, 130,000 square foot facility built here in our Springfield campus. We traveled all over the country to find best in practices and best uh, ways to do it. But we will be having a huge uh, groundbreaking on November 12th. Uh, in a little less than two years, we will open up Missouri's first Center for Advanced Manufacturing, and we think it's going to be the best one in the country. Well, congratulations. That's incredible. Wow. Well, well, well there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Um, this has been incredible, insightful. I don't know what else, Liz. What do you think? I mean, the receipts were just piled high. I have a whole pile of receipts here with all these stats. And I mean, Dr. Hinton did not come to play today. He came no, to he did not. There <laughs> so it is. It was very, very insightful. <laughs> Dr. Hal Higdon, Chancellor of the Ozarks Technical Community College System and President of the OTC Springfield Campus. Hal, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you very much. Enjoyed it. Hope you enjoyed that episode. To learn more about the EdUp Experience, please visit edupexperience.com. And if you want to be in on the live recordings, please sign up for our email list. Go to edupexperience.com and sign up to be a subscriber. We'll let you know how you can listen in live and get the scoop before anyone else does. So, Please, as always, feel free to share this podcast, rate, review, and subscribe. We would really, really appreciate that. You've been listening to The EdUp Experience, where we make education your business with your hosts, Dr. Joe Salustio, Elizabeth Liva, and Elvin Freitas.